0: Chapter five of Three Men and a Maid This is a LibriVox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by PG Woodhouse. Chapter five. Good God! cried Eustace Hignett he stared at the figure which loomed above him in the fading light, which came through the porthole of the stateroom. The hour was seven-thirty, and he had just woken from a troubled doze, full of strange nightmares, and for the moment he thought that he must still be dreaming, for the figure before him could have walked straight into any nightmare, and no questions asked. Then suddenly he became aware that it was his cousin Samuel Marlowe. As in the historic case of Father in the pigsty, he could tell him by his hat. But why was he looking like that? Was it simply some trick of the uncertain light, or was his face really black, and had his mouth suddenly grown six times its normal size and become a vivid crimson? Sam turned. He had been looking at himself in the mirror with a satisfaction which, to the casual observer, his appearance would not have seemed to justify. Hignett had not been suffering from a delusion. His cousin's face was black, and even as he turned he gave it a dab with a piece of burnt cork, and made it blacker. "'Hallo! You're awake!' he said, and switched on the light, Eustace Hignett shied like a startled horse. His friend's profile, seen dimly, had been disconcerting enough, full face, He was a revolting object, nothing that Eustace Hignett had encountered in his recent dreams, and they had included such unusual fauna as elephants in top hats and running shorts had affected him so profoundly. Sam's appearance smote him like a blow. It seemed to take him straight into a different and dreadful world. "'What? What? What?' he gurgled. Sam squinted at himself in the glass, and added a touch of black to his nose. How do I look? Eustace Hignett began to fear that his cousin's reason must have become unseated. He could not conceive of any really sane man looking like that, being anxious to be told how he looked. My lips red enough. It's for the ship's concert, you know. Starts in half an hour. Though I believe I'm not on? till the second part speaking as a friend would you put a touch more black round the ears or are they all right curiosity replaced apprehension in Hignett's mind what on earth are you doing performing at the ship's concert oh they wrote me in it got about somehow that I was a valuable man and they wouldn't take no Sam deepened the colour of his ears As a matter of fact, he said casually, my fiancée made rather a point of my doing something. A sharp yell from the lower berth proclaimed the fact that the significance of the remark had not been lost on Eustace. Your fiancée? The girl I'm engaged to, didn't I tell you about that? Yes, I'm engaged. Eustace sighed heavily. I feared the worst. Tell me, who is she? didn't i tell you her name no curious i must have forgotten he hummed an airy strain as he blackened the tip of his nose it's rather a curious coincidence really her name is bennett she may be a relation that's true of course girls do have relations what is her first name and that's another rather remarkable thing it's Wilhelmina. Wilhelmina of course there must be hundreds of girls in the world called wilhelmina bennett but still it is a coincidence what colour is her hair demanded eustace hignett in a hollow voice her hair what colour is it her hair now let me see you ask me what colour is her hair well you might call it auburn or or russet or you might call it titian never mind what you might call it is it red red Why, yes, that is a very good description of it. Now that you put it to me like that, it is red. Has she a trick of grabbing at you suddenly when she gets excited like a kitten with a ball of wool? Yes, yes, she has. Eustace Hignett uttered a sharp cry. Sam, he said, can you bear a shock? I'll have a dash at it. Brace up. "'The girl you are engaged to is the same girl who promised to marry me.' "'Well, well,' said Sam. There was a silence. "'Awfully sorry, of course, and all that,' said Sam. "'Don't apologise to me,' said Eustace. "'Poor old chap! My only feeling towards you is one of the purest and profoundest pity.' He reached out and pressed Sam's hand. "'I regard you as a toad beneath the harrow.' "'Well, I suppose that's one way of uh, offering congratulations and cheery good wishes.' "'And on top of that,' went on Eustace, deeply moved, "'you have got to sing at the ship's concert.' "'Why shouldn't I sing at the ship's concert?' "'My dear old man, you have many worthy qualities, "'but you must know that you can't sing. "'You can't sing for nuts.' I don't want to discourage you, but, long ago as it is, you can't have forgotten what an ass you made of yourself at that house-supper at school. Seeing you up against it like this, I regret that I threw a lump of butter at you on that occasion, though at the time it seemed the only course to pursue. Sam started. Was it you who threw a bit of butter? It was. I wish I had known, you silly chump! You ruined my collar! Ah, well, it's seven years ago. You would have had to send it to the wash anyhow by this time. But don't let us brood on the past. Let us put our heads together, and think how we can get you out of this terrible situation. I don't want to get out of it. I confidently expect to be the hit of the evening. The hit of the evening? you singing i'm not going to sing i'm going to do that imitation of frank tinney which i did at the trinity smoker you can't have forgotten that you were at the piano taking the part of the conductor of the orchestra what a riot i was we were i say eustace old man i suppose you don't feel well enough to come up now and take your old part you could do it without a rehearsal You remember how it went? Hello, Ernest. Hello, Frank. Why not come along? The only piano I will ever sit at will be one firmly fixed to a floor that does not heave and wobble under me. Nonsense! The boat's as steady as a rock now. The sea's like a mill-pond. Nevertheless. Thanking you for your suggestion, no. Oh, well then. I shall have to get on as best i can with that fellow mortimer we've been rehearsing all the afternoon and he seems to have the hang of the thing but he won't be really right he has no pep no vim still if you won't well i think i'll be getting along to his stateroom i told him i'd look in for a last rehearsal the door closed behind sam and eustace hignett lying on his back gave himself up to melancholy meditation He was deeply disturbed by his cousin's sad story. He knew what it meant being engaged to Wilhelmina Bennett. It was like being taken aloft in a balloon, and dropped with a thud on the rocks. His reflections were broken by the abrupt opening of the door. Marlowe rushed in. Eustace peered anxiously out of his berth. There was too much cork on his cousin's face. To allow of any real registering of emotion. But he could tell, from his manner, that all was not well. What's the matter? Sam sank on the lounge. The bounder has quit! The bounder! What bounder? There is only one! Bream Mortimer curse him! There may be others whom thoughtless critics rank as bounders, but he is the only man really deserving of the title. He refuses to appear. He has walked out on the act. He has left me flat. I went into his stateroom just now, as arranged, and the man was lying on his bunk groaning. I thought you said the sea was like a mill-pond. It wasn't that. He's perfectly fit. But it seems that the silly ass took it into his head to propose to Billy just before dinner. Apparently He's loved her for years in a silent, self-effacing way. And, of course, she told him that she was engaged to me. And the thing upset him to such an extent that he says the idea of sitting down at a piano and helping me give an imitation of Frank Tinney revolts him. He says he intends to spend the evening in bed reading Schopenhauer. I hope it chokes him but this is splendid this lets you out what do you mean lets me out why now you won't be able to appear oh you will be thankful for this in years to come won't i appear won't i dashed well appear do you think i'm going to disappoint that dear girl when she is relying on me i would rather die but you can't appear without a pianist i've got a pianist you have yes a little undersized shrimp of a fellow with a green face and ears like water wings i don't think i know him yes you do he's you me yes you you are going to sit at the piano to-night i'm sorry to disappoint you but it's impossible i gave you my views on the subject just now you've altered them i haven't well you soon will and I'll tell you why. If you don't get up out of that damned berth you've been roosting in all your life, I'm going to ring for J.B. Midgley, and I'm going to tell him to bring me a bit of dinner in here, and I'm going to eat it before your eyes. But you've had dinner. Well, I'll have another. I feel just ready for a nice fat pork chop. Stop, stop. A nice fat pork chop with potatoes and lots of cabbage, repeated Sam firmly. And I shall eat it here, on this very lounge. Now, how do we do? You wouldn't do that, said Eustace piteously. I would and will. But I shouldn't be any good at the piano. I've forgotten how the thing used to go. You haven't done anything of the kind. I come in and say, Hello, Ernest. And you say, Hello, Frank. And then you help me tell the story about the Pullman car. A child could do your part of it. Perhaps there is some child on board. No, I want you. I shall feel safe with you. We've done it together before. But honestly, I really don't think. It isn't as if. Sam rose and extended a finger towards the bell. Stop, stop, cried Eustace Hignett. I'll do it. Sam withdrew his finger. Good, he said. We've just got time for a rehearsal while you're dressing. Hello, Ernest. Hello, Frank, said Eustace Hignett, brokenly, as he searched for his unfamiliar trousers. End of Chapter 5 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org chapter six of three men and a maid this is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org three men and a maid by P. G. Woodhouse chapter six ships concerts are given in aid of the seamen's orphans and widows and after one has been present at a few of them one seems to feel that any right-thinking orphan or widow would rather jog along and take a chance of starvation than be the innocent cause of such things they open with a long speech from the master of ceremonies so long as a rule that it is only the thought of what is going to happen afterwards that enables the audience to bear it with fortitude this done the amateur talent is unleashed and the grim work begins it was not till after the all too brief intermission for rest and recuperation that the newly formed team of Marlowe and Hignett was scheduled to appear. Previous to this there had been dark deeds done in the quiet saloon. The lecturer on deep-sea fish had fulfilled his threat, and spoken at great length on a subject which, treated by a master of oratory, would have palled on the audience after ten or fifteen minutes. And at the end of fifteen minutes this speaker had only just got past the haddocks, and was feeling his way tentatively through the shrimps the rosary had been sung and there was an uneasy doubt as to whether it was not going to be sung again after the interval the latest rumour being that the second of the rival lady singers had proved adamant to all appeals and intended to fight the thing out on the lines she had originally chosen if they put her in irons a young man recited gunga din and willfully misinterpreting the gratitude of the audience that it was over for a desire for more Had followed it with fuzzy wuzzy his sister these things run in families had sung my little grey home in the west rather somberly for she had wanted to sing the rosary and with the same obtuseness which characterized her brother had come back and rendered two plantation songs the audience was now examining its programs in the interval of silence in order to ascertain the duration of the sentence still remaining unexpired it was shocked read the following. 7. A Little Imitation S. Marlowe. All over the saloon you could see fair women and brave men wilting in their seats. Imitation. The word, as Keats would have said, was like a knell. Many of these people were old travellers and their minds went back wincingly, as one recalls forgotten wounds. To occasions when performers at ship's concerts had imitated whole strings of Dickens' characters, or, with the assistance of a few hats and little false hair, had endeavoured to portray Napoleon, Bismarck, Shakespeare, and others of the famous dead. In this printed line on the programme there was nothing to indicate the nature or scope of the imitation which this S. Marlowe proposed to inflict upon them. They could only sit and wait and hope that it would be short. There was a sinking of hearts, as Eustace Hignett moved down the room and took his place at the piano. A pianist! This argued more singing. The more pessimistic began to fear that the imitation was going to be one of those imitations of well-known opera-artists, which, though rare, do occasionally add to the horrors of ship's concerts. They stared at Hignett apprehensively. There seemed to them something ominous in the man's aspect. His face was very pale and set, the face of one approaching a task at which his humanity shudders. They could not know that the pallor of Eustace Hignett was due entirely to the slight tremor which, even on the calmest nights, the engines of an ocean liner produced in the flooring of a dining room saloon, and to that faint yet well-defined smell of cooked meats which clings to a room where a great many people have recently been eating a great many meals. A few beads of cold perspiration were clinging to Eustace Hignett's brow. He looked straight before him with unseeing eyes. He was thinking hard of the Sahara. So tense was Eustace's concentration that he did not see Billy Bennett seated in the front row. Billy had watched him enter with a little thrill of embarrassment. She wished that she had been content with one of the seats at the back, but her friend Jane Hubbard, who accompanied her, had insisted on the front row in order to avoid recognition for as long as possible billy now put up her fan and turned to jane she was surprised to see that her friend was staring eagerly before her with fixity almost equal to that of eustace what is the matter jane jane hubbard was a tall handsome girl with large brown eyes about her as bream mortimer had said there was something dynamic the daughter of an eminent explorer and big-game hunter she had frequently accompanied her father on his expeditions an outdoors girl who is that man at the piano she whispered do you know him as a matter of fact i do said billy his name is hignett why i met him on the subway not long ago poor little fellow how miserable he looks at this moment their conversation was interrupted eustace hignett pulling himself together with a painful effort raised his hands and struck a crashing chord and as he did so there appeared through the door at the far end of the saloon a figure at the sight of which the entire audience started convulsively with a feeling that a worse thing had befallen them than even they had looked for the figure was richly clad in some scarlet material its face was a grisly black and below the nose appeared what seemed to be a horrible gash it advanced towards them smoking a cigar Hello, Ernest it said and then it seemed to pause expectantly as though desiring some reply A dead silence reigned in the saloon hello Ernest those nearest the piano and nobody more quickly than Jane Hubbard now observed that the white face of the man on the stool had grown whiter still his eyes gazed out glassily from under his damp brow he looked like a man who was seeing some ghastly sight The audience sympathized with him. They felt like that, too. In all human plans, there is ever some slight hitch, some little miscalculation, which just makes all the difference. A moment's thought should have told Eustace Hignett that a half-smoked cigar was one of the essential properties to any imitation of the eminent Mr. Tinney. But he had completely overlooked the fact. The cigar came as an absolute surprise to him, and it could not have affected him more powerfully, if it had been a voice from the tomb. He stared at it, pallidly, like Macbeth at the ghost of Banquo. It was a strong, lively, young cigar, and its curling smoke played lightly about his nostrils. His jaw fell, his eyes protruded. He looked for a long moment like one of those deep-sea fishes concerning which the recent lecturer had spoken so searchingly. When with the cry of a stricken animal he bounded from his seat and fled for the deck there was a rustle of millinery at billy's side as jane hubbard rose and followed him jane was deeply stirred even as he sat looking so pale and piteous at the piano her big heart had gone out to him and now in his moment of anguish he seemed to bring to the surface everything that was best and most compassionate in her nature thrusting aside a steward who happened to be between her and the door, she raced in pursuit. Sir Marlowe had watched his cousin's dash for the open, with a consternation so complete that his sense seemed to have left him. A general, deserted by his men on some stricken field, might have felt something akin to his emotion. Of all the learned professions, the imitation of Mr. Frank Tinney is the one which can least easily be carried through single-handed. The man at the piano the leader of the orchestra is essential. He is the lifeblood of the entertainment. Without him, nothing can be done. For an instant, Sam stood there, gaping blankly. Then the open door of the saloon seemed to beckon an invitation. He made for it, reached it, passed through it. That concluded his efforts in aid of the seamen's orphans and widows. The spell which had lain on the audience broke. This imitation seemed to them to possess in an extraordinary measure the one quality which renders amateur imitations tolerable—that of brevity. They had seen many amateur imitations, but never one as short as this. The saloon echoed with their applause. It brought no balm to Samuel Marlowe. He did not hear it. He had fled for refuge to his stateroom, and was lying in the lower berth. Chewing the pillow, a soul in torment. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Chapter 7 of Three Men and a Maid This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 7 There was a tap at the door. Sam sat up dizzily. He had lost all count of time. Who's that? I have a note for you, sir. It was the level voice of J. B. Midgley, the steward. The stewards of the White Star Line, besides being the civilest and most obliging body of men in the world, all have soft and pleasant voices. A White Star Steward, waking you up at six-thirty to tell you that your bath is ready, when you wanted to sleep on till twelve, is the nearest human approach to the nightingale." A what? A note, sir. Sam jumped up and switched on the light. He went to the door and took the note from J. B. Midgley, who, his mission accomplished, retired in an orderly manner down the passage. Sam looked at the letter with a thrill. He had never seen the handwriting before, but with the eye of love he recognized it. It was just the sort of hand he would have expected Billy to write round and smooth and flowing, the writing of a warm-hearted girl. He tore open the envelope. Please come to the top deck. I want to speak to you." Sam could not disguise it from himself, that he was a little disappointed. I don't know if you see anything wrong with the letter, but the way Sam looked at it was that, for a first love letter, it might have been longer, and perhaps a shade warmer, and, without running any risk of writer's cramp, she might have signed it. However these were small matters no doubt she had been in a hurry and all that sort of thing the important point was that he was going to see her when a man's afraid sings the bard a beautiful maid is a cheering sight to see and the same truth holds good when a man has made an exhibition of himself at a ship's concert a woman's gentle sympathy that was what sam Marlowe wanted more than anything else at the moment that he felt was what the doctor ordered He scrubbed the burnt cork off his face with all possible speed, and changed his clothes, and made his way to the upper deck. It was like Billy, he felt, to have chosen this spot for their meeting. It would be deserted, and it was hallowed for them both by sacred associations. She was standing at the rail, looking out over the water. The moon was quite full, out on the horizon to the south, its light shone on the sea, making it look like the silver beach of some distant fairy island. The girl appeared to be wrapped in thought, and it was not till the sharp crack of Sam's head against an overhanging stanchion announced his approach that she turned. Oh, is that you? Yes. You've been a long time. It wasn't an easy job, exclaimed Sam, getting all that burnt cork off. You've no notion how the stuff sticks. You have to use butter, she shuddered. Don't but i did you have to with burnt cork don't tell me these horrible things her voice rose almost hysterically i never want to hear the words burnt cork mentioned again as long as i live i feel exactly the same sam moved to her side darling he said in a low voice it was like you to ask me to meet you here i know what you were thinking you thought that i should need sympathy you wanted to pet me to soothe my wounded feelings, to hold me in your arms, and to tell me that as we loved each other, what did anything else matter?" "'I didn't.' "'You didn't?' "'No, I didn't.' "'Oh, you didn't. I thought you did,' he looked at her wistfully. "'I thought,' he said, "'that possibly you might have wished to comfort me. I have been through a great strain. I have had a shock. And what about me?' she demanded passionately. "'Haven't I had a shock?' He melted at once have you had a shock too poor little thing sit down and tell me all about it she looked away from him her face working can't you understand what a shock I have had I thought you were the perfect knight. yes isn't it isn't what I thought you said it was a perfect night I said I thought you were a perfect knight. oh ah a sailor crossed the deck a dim figure in the shadows went over to a sort of raised summer-house with a brass thing in it, fooled about for a moment, and went away again. Sailors earn their money easily. "'Yes,' said Sam, when he had gone. "'I forget what I was saying. "'Something about my being the perfect knight. "'Yes, I thought you were. "'That's good. "'But you're not. "'No. "'No. "'Oh!' Silence fell. Sam was feeling hurt and bewildered. He could not understand her mood. He had come up expecting to be soothed and comforted, and she was like a petulant iceberg. Cynically he recalled some lines of poetry which he had had to write out a hundred times on one occasion at school, as a punishment for having introduced a white mouse into chapel. O woman, in our hours of ease, un-something-something-something-please, when tiddly-umpty-umpty-brow, something 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 thou. he had forgotten the exact words, but the gist of it had been that woman, however she might treat a man in times of prosperity, could be relied on to rally round and do the right thing when he was in trouble. How little the poet had known women! "'Why not?' he said huffily. She gave a little sob. "'I put you on a pedestal, and I find you have feet of clay. You have blurred the image which I formed of you. I can never think of you again without picturing you—' as you stood in that saloon, stammering and helpless. Well, what can you do when your pianist runs out on you? You could have done something. I can't forgive a man for looking ridiculous. Oh, what, what, she cried, induced you to try to give an imitation of Bert Williams? Sam started, stung to the quick. It wasn't Bert Williams, it was Frank Tinney. Well, how was I to know? "'I did my best,' said Sam, sullenly. "'That is an awful thought. I did it for your sake.' "'I know. It gives me a horrible sense of guilt,' she shuddered again. "'Then suddenly, with the nervous quickness of a woman unstrung, thrust a small black gollywog into his hand. "'Take this. Take it. What's this?' "'You bought it for me yesterday at the barber's shop. It's the only present that you have given me. Take it back.' "'I don't want it. I shouldn't know what to do with it.' "'You must take it,' she said in a low voice. "'It is a symbol.' "'A what?' "'A symbol of our broken love.' "'I don't see how you make that out. It's a gollywog.' "'I can never marry you now.' "'What? Good heavens, don't be absurd.' "'I can't.' "'Oh, go on, have a dash at it,' he said encouragingly, though his heart was sinking. She shook her head. "'No, I couldn't.' "'Oh, hang it all.' "'I couldn't. I'm a strange girl.' You're a darn silly girl." "'I don't see what right you have to say that,' she flared. "'I don't see what right you have to say you can't marry me, and try to load me up with gollywogs,' he retorted with equal heat. "'Oh, can't you understand?' "'No, I'm dashed if I can,' she looked at him despondently. "'When I said I would marry you, you were a hero to me. You stood to me for everything that was noble and brave and wonderful. I had only to shut my eyes to conjure up uh, the picture of you as you dived off the rail that morning. Now, her voice trembled, if I shut my eyes now, I can only see a man with a hideous black face making himself the laughing-stock of the ship. How can I marry you haunted by that picture? But, good heavens, you talk as if I made a habit of blacking up. You talk as if you expected me to come to the altar smothered in burnt cork. I shall always think of you as I saw you that night." She looked at him sadly. There's a bit of black still on your left ear. He tried to take her hand, but she drew it away. He fell back as if struck. "'So this is the end,' he muttered. "'Yes. It's partly on your ear and partly on your cheek.' "'So this is the end,' he repeated. "'You'd better go below and ask your steward to give you some more butter.' he laughed bitterly well i might have expected it i might have known what would happen eustace warned me eustace was right he knows women as i do now women what mighty ills have not been done by women who to betrayed the what's-its-name a woman who lost lost who lost who er uh, and so on a woman so all is over there is nothing to be said but good-bye no good-bye then miss bennett good-bye said billy sadly i i'm sorry don't mention it you do understand don't you you have made everything perfectly clear i hope i hope you won't be unhappy unhappy sam produced a strangled noise from his larynx like the cry of a shrimp in pain unhappy i'm not unhappy whatever gave you that idea i'm smiling i'm laughing I feel I've had a merciful escape. It's very unkind and rude of you to say that. It reminds me of a moving picture I saw in New York. It was called Saved from the Scaffold. Oh, I'm not unhappy. What have I got to be unhappy about? What on earth does any man want to get married for? I don't. Give me my gay bachelor life. My Uncle Charlie used to say it's better luck to get married than it is to be kicked in the head by a mule. But he was an optimist. Good-night, Miss Bennett, and good-bye, for ever. He turned on his heel, and strode across the deck. From a white heaven, the moon still shone benignly down, mocking him. He had spoken bravely, but the most captious critic could not but have admitted that he had made a good exit. But already his heart was aching as he drew near to his stateroom he was amazed and disgusted to hear a high tenor voice raised in song proceeding from behind the closed door i free nor for in shining armour, though his lance be sharp and air keen but i fear i fear the glamour though the drobbing lashes seen i fear i fear the glamour sam flung open the door wrathfully that eustace ignat should still be alive was bad he had pictured him hurling himself overboard and bobbing about a pleasing sight in the wake of the vessel that he should be singing was an outrage remorse sam thought should have stricken Eustace Hignett dumb. Instead of which, here he was comporting himself like a blasted linnet. It was all wrong. The man could have no conscience whatever. Well, he said sternly, so there you are. Eustace Hignett looked up brightly, even beamingly, in the brief interval which had elapsed since Sam had seen him last. An extraordinary transformation had taken place in this young man. His wan look had disappeared. His eyes were bright. His face wore that beastly, self-satisfied smirk, which you see in pictures advertising certain makes of fine-mesh underwear. If Eustace Hignett had been a full-page drawing in a magazine with, My dear fellow, I always wear Sigsby's superfine featherweight, printed underneath him, he could not have looked more pleased with himself. Hello, he said, I was wondering where you had got to. Never mind, said Sam coldly where i had got to where did you get to and why you poor miserable worm he went on in a burst of generous indignation what have you to say for yourself what do you mean by dashing away like that and killing my little entertainment awfully sorry old man i hadn't foreseen the cigar i was bearing up tolerably well till i began to sniff the smoke then everything seemed to go black i don't mean you of course you were black already and i got the feeling that that i simply must get on deck and drown myself well why didn't you demanded sam with a strong sense of injury i might have forgiven you then but to come down here and find you singing a soft light came into eustace hignett's eyes i want to tell you all about that he said it's the most astonishing story a miracle you might almost call it makes you believe in fate and all that sort of thing A week ago I was on the subway in New York. He broke off while Sam cursed him, the subway and the city of New York in the order named. My dear chap, what is the matter? What is the matter? Ha! Something is the matter, repeated Eustace Hignett. I can tell it by your manner. Something has happened to disturb and upset you. I know you so well that I can pierce the mask. What is it? Tell me. Ha! Ha! You surely can't still be brooding over that concert business. Why, that's all over. I take it that after my departure you made the most colossal ass of yourself, but why don't that worry you? These things cannot affect one permanently, can't they? Let me tell you that as a result of that concert my engagement is broken off. Eustace sprang forward with outstretched hand. Not really? How splendid! except my congratulations this is the finest thing that could possibly have happened these are not idle words as one who has been engaged to the girl himself I speak feelingly you are well out of it Sam Sam thrust aside his hand had it been his neck he might have clutched it eagerly but he, but he drew the line at shaking hands with Eustace Hignett my heart is broken he said with dignity that feeling will pass giving way to one of devout thankfulness I know I've been there. After all, Wilhelmina Bennett. what is she? A rag, a bone, and a hank of hair. She is nothing of the kind, said Sam, revolted. Pardon me, said Eustace firmly. I speak as an expert. I know her, and I repeat, she is a rag, a bone, and a hank of hair. She is the only girl in the world, and owing to your idiotic behaviour, I have lost her. "'You speak of the only girl in the world,' said Eustace blithely. "'If you want to hear about the only girl in the world, I will tell you. "'A week ago I was on the subway in New York. "'I'm going to bed,' said Sam brusquely. "'All right, I'll tell you while you're undressing. "'I don't want to listen.' "'A week ago,' said Eustace Hignett, "'I will ask you to picture me, seated after some difficulty, "'in a carriage of a New York subway. "'I got into conversation with a girl with an elephant gun. "'Sam revised his private commination service in order to include the elephant gun. She was my soul mate, proceeded Eustace with quiet determination. I didn't know it at the time, but she was. She had grave brown eyes, a wonderful personality, and this elephant gun. She was bringing the gun away from the downtown place where she had taken it to be mended. Did she shoot you with it? Shoot me? What do you mean? Why? No. The girl must have been a fool said Sam bitterly. The chance of a lifetime, and she missed it. Where are my pajamas? I haven't seen your pyjamas. She talked to me about this elephant gun, and explained its mechanism. You can imagine how she soothed my aching heart. My heart, if you recollect, was aching at the moment, quite unnecessarily, if I had only known, because it was only a couple of days since my engagement to Wilhelmina Bennett had been broken off. Well, we parted at 66th Street, and, strange as it may seem, I forgot all about her. Do it again. Tell it again? Good heavens, no! Forget all about her again!" Nothing, said Eustace Hignett gravely, could make me do that. Our souls have blended. Our beings have called to one another from their deepest depths, saying, There are your pyjamas over in the corner, saying, You are mine. How could I forget her after that? Well, as I was saying, we parted. Little did I know that she was sailing on this very boat but just now she came to me as I writhed on the deck did you writhe asked Sam with a flicker of moody interest I certainly did that's good but not for long that's bad she came to me and healed me Sam that girl is an angel switch off the light when you're finished she seemed to understand without a word how I was feeling there are some situations which do not need words She went away and returned with a mixture of some kind in a glass. I don't know what it was. It had Worcester sauce in it. She put it to my lips. She made me drink it. She said it was what her father always used in Africa for bull calves with the staggers. Well, believe me or believe me not, are you asleep? Yes. Believe me or believe me not, in under two minutes. I was not merely freed from the nausea caused by your cigar. I was smoking myself. I was walking the deck with her without the slightest qualm. I was even able to look over the side from time to time and comment on the beauty of the moon on the water. I have said some modern things about women since I came on board this boat. I withdraw them unreservedly. They still apply to girls like Wilhelmina Bennett, but I have ceased to include the whole sex in my remarks. Jane Hubbard has restored my faith in woman." "'Sam! Sam!' "'What?' i said that jane hubbard has restored my faith in woman oh all right eustace hignett finished undressing and got into bed with a soft smile on his face he switched off the light there was a long silence broken only by the distant purring of the engines at about twelve-thirty a voice came from the lower berth sam what is it now there is a sweet womanly strength about her sam She was telling me that she once killed a panther with a hat-pin. Sam groaned and tossed on his mattress. Silence fell again. At least I think it was a panther, said Eustace Hignett at a quarter past one. Either a panther or a puma. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tim Bulkeley of BigBible.org Chapter Eight of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P.G. Woodhouse, Chapter Eight. A week after the liner Atlantic had docked at Southampton, San Marlowe might have been observed and was observed by various of the residents sitting on a bench on the esplanade of that repellent watering place Bingley-on-the-Sea in Sussex. All watering places on the south coast of England are blots on the landscape but, though I am aware that by saying it I shall offend the civic pride of some of the others, none are so peculiarly foul as Bingley-on-the-Sea. The asphalt on the Bingley esplanade is several degrees more depressing than the asphalt on other esplanades. The Swiss waiters at the Hotel Magnificent where sam was stopping are in a class of bungling incompetence by themselves the envy and despair of all the other swiss waiters at all the other hotels magnificent along the coast for dreariness of aspect bingley on the sea stands alone the very waves that break on the shingle seem to creep up the beach reluctantly as if it revolted them to come to such a place Why, then, was Sam Marlowe visiting this ozone-swept Gehenna? Why, with all the rest of England at his disposal, had he chosen to spend a week at breezy, blighted Bingley? Simply because he had been disappointed in love. He had sought relief by slinking off alone to the most benighted spot he knew, in the same spirit as other men in similar circumstances had gone off to the Rockies to shoot grizzly bears. To a certain extent the experiment had proved successful if the hotel magnificent had not cured his agony the service and the cooking there had at least done much to take his mind off it his heart still ached but he felt equal to going to london and seeing his father which of course he ought to have done immediately upon his arrival in england he rose from his bench and going back to the hotel to inquire about trains observed a familiar figure in the lobby eustace hignett was leaning over the counter in conversation with the desk clerk. "'Hello, Eustace!' said Sam. "'Hello, Sam!' said Eustace. There was a brief silence. The conversational opening had been a little unfortunately chosen, for it reminded both men of a painful episode in their recent lives. "'What are you doing here?' asked Eustace. "'What are you doing here?' asked Sam. "'I came to see you,' said Eustace leading his cousin out of the lobby, and onto the bleak esplanade. A fine rain had begun to fall, and Bingley looked, if possible, worse than ever. "'I asked for you at your club, and they told me you'd come down here.' "'What did you want to see me about?' fact is, old man, I'm in a bit of a hole.' "'What's the matter?' "'It's rather a long story,' said Eustace, depreciatingly. "'Go ahead.' "'I don't know where to begin. "'Have a dash at starting at the beginning.' Eustace stared gloomily at a stranded crab on the beach below. The crab stared gloomily back. "'Well, you remember my telling you about the girl I met on the boat?' "'Jane something.' "'Jane Hubbard,' said Eustace reverently. "'Sam, I love that girl. I know, you told me.' "'But I didn't tell her. I tried to muster up the nerve, but we got to Southampton without my having clicked.' What a dashed difficult thing a proposal is to bring off, isn't it? I didn't bring it off, and it began to look to me as though I was in the soup. And then she told me something which gave me an idea. She said the Bennetts had invited her to stay with them in the country when she got to England. Old Mr. Bennet and his pal Mortimer, Bream's father, were trying to get a house somewhere which they could share, only so far they hadn't managed to find the house they wanted. When I heard that, I said, Ha! You said, What? asked sam i said ha why because i had an idea don't interrupt old man or you'll get me muddled where was i i don't know i remember i'd just got the idea i happened to know you see that bennett and mortimer were both frightfully keen on getting windles for the summer but my mother wouldn't hear of it and gave them both the miss in bulk it suddenly occurred to me that mother was going to be away in america all the summer so why shouldn't I make a private deal, let them the house, and make it a stipulation that I was to stay there to look after things? And to cut a long story short, that's what I did. You let Windles. Yes, old Bennett was down on the dock at Southampton to meet Wilhelmina, and I fixed it up with him then and there. He was so bucked at the idea of getting the place that he didn't kick for a moment at the suggestion that I should stick on at the house. Said he would be delighted to have me there and wrote out a fat cheque on the spot. We hired a car, and drove straight over. It's only about twenty miles from Southampton, you know. And we've been there ever since. Bennett sent a wire to Mortimer, telling him to join us, and he came down next day. He paused, and looked at Sam as though desiring comment. Sam had none to offer. Why do you say you're in a hole? he asked. It seems to me as though you've done yourself a bit of good. You've got the cheque. "'And you're in the same house with Miss Hubbard. What more do you want?' "'But suppose Mother gets to hear about it.' "'Well?' "'She'd be sorer than a sunburnt neck.' "'Probably. Why should she hear of it?' "'Ah, I'm coming to that. Is there more of the story?' "'Quite a lot.' "'Charge on,' said Sam, resignedly." Eustace Hignett fixed a despondent gaze on the shingle up which the grey waves were crawling with their usual sluggish air of wishing themselves elsewhere a raindrop fell down the back of his neck but he did not notice it it was the weather that really started it he said started what the trouble That what sort of weather have you been having here i haven't noticed well down at windles it's been raining practically all the time and after about a couple of days it became fairly clear to me that bennett and mortimer were getting a bit fed i mean to say having spent all their lives in america don't you know they weren't used to a country where it rained all the time and pretty soon it began to get on their nerves they started quarrelling nothing bad at first but hotting up more and more till at last they were hardly on speaking terms every little thing that happened seemed to get the wind up them there was that business of smith for instance who's smith Mortimer's bulldog. Old Bennett is scared of him, and wants him kept in the stables. But Mortimer insists on letting him roam about the house. Well, they scrapped a goodish bit about that. And then there was the orchestrion. You remember the orchestrion? I haven't been down at Windle since I was a kid. That's right, I forgot that. Well, my pater had an orchestrion put in the drawing-room. One of these automatic things you switch on, you know, makes a devil of a row bennett can't stand it and mortimer insists on playing it all day well they hotted up a goodish bit over that well i don't see how all this affects you if they want a scrap why not let them yes but you see the most frightful thing has happened at least it hasn't happened yet but it may any day bennett's talking about taking legal advice to see if he can't induce mortimer to cheese it by law as it can't be stopped any other way and the deuce of it is your father's Bennett's legal representative over in England, and he's sure to go to him. Well, that'll do Pater a bit of good. Legal fees. Eustace Hignett waved his arms despairingly at his cousin's obtuseness. But don't you see, if Bennett goes to your father about this binge, your father will get on to the fact that Windle's has been let. And he'll nose about and make inquiries, and the first thing that'll happen will be that mother will get to hear of it, and then where shall I be? Sam pondered yes there's that he admitted well now you see what a hole i'm in yes you are what are you going to do about it you're the only person who can help me what can i do why your father wants you to join the firm doesn't he well for goodness sake buck up and join it don't waste a minute dash up to london by the next train and sign on then if bennett does blow in for advice you can fix it somehow that he sees you instead of your father and it'll be all right You can easily work it. Get the office boy or somebody to tell Bennett that your father's engaged, but that you are on the spot. He won't mind as long as he sees somebody in the firm. But I don't know anything about the law. What shall I say to him? That's all right. I've been studying it up a bit. As far as I can gather, this legal advice business is quite simple. Anything that isn't a tort is a misdemeanor. You've simply got to tell old Bennett that, in your opinion, the whole thing looks jolly like a tort what's the word again taught what does it mean I don't know probably nobody knows but it's a safe card to play taught don't forget it taught right ho. well then come along and pack your things there's a train to London in about an hour they walked back to the hotel Sam gulped once or twice oh by the way he said er uh, how is er uh, Miss Bennett?" oh she's all right Eustace Hignett hummed a gay air Sam's ready acquiescence in his scheme had relieved his apprehensive mind. "'Going strong?' said Sam, after a pause. "'Oh, absolutely. We're quite good friends again now. No use being in the same house and not being on speaking terms. It's rummy how the passage of time sort of changes a fellow's point of view. Why, when she told me about her engagement, I congratulated her as cheerfully as damn it. And only a few weeks ago—' "'Her engagement!' exclaimed Sam, leaping like a stricken blanc "'Her?' en g "'To bring Mortimer, you know,' said Eustace Hignett. "'She got engaged to him the day before yesterday.'" End of chapter 8 Recording by Tim Bulkeley of BigBible.org Chapter 9 of Three Men and a Maid This is a LibriVox recording All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or a volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by tim Bulkeley of big three men and a maid by p g woodhouse chapter nine the offices of the old established firm of marlow thorpe prescott winslow and appleby are in ridgeway's inn not far from fleet street If you're a millionaire beset by blackmailers, or anyone else to whose comfort the best legal advice is essential, and have decided to put your affairs in the hands of the ablest and discreetest firm in London, you proceed through a dark and grimy entry, and up a dark and grimy flight of stairs, and having felt your way along a dark and grimy passage, you come at length to a dark and grimy door. There is plenty of dirt in other parts of Ridgeway's Inn. But nowhere is it so plentiful, so rich in alluvial deposits, as on the exterior of the offices of Marlowe, Thorpe, Prescott, Winslow, and Appleby. As you tap on the topmost of the geological strata concealing the ground glass of the door, a sense of relief and security floods your being, for in London grubbiness is the gauge of a lawyer's respectability. The brass plate let into the woodwork of this door is misleading. Reading it you get the impression that on the other side quite a covey of lawyers await your arrival. The name of the firm leads you to suppose that there will be barely standing-room in the office. You picture Thorpe jostling you aside, as he makes for Prescott to discuss with him the latest case of demurrer, and Winslow and Appleby treading on your toes deep in conversation about Repelvin but these legal firms dwindle the years go by and take their toll snatching away here a Prescott there an Appleby till before you know where you are you're down to your last lawyer the only surviving member of the firm of Marlowe Thorpe what I said before was at the time with which this story deals Sir Mallaby Marlowe son of the original founder of the firm and father of the celebrated black-faced comedian Samuel of that ilk and the outer office where callers were received and parked, till Sir Mallaby could find time for them, was occupied by a single clerk. When Sam, reaching the office after his journey, opened the door, this clerk, John Peters by name, was seated on a high stool, holding in one hand a half-eaten sausage, in the other an extraordinarily large and powerful revolver. At the sight of Sam he laid down both engines of destruction and beamed. He was not a particularly successful beamer, being hampered by a cast in one eye which gave him a truculent and sinister look. But those who knew him knew he had a heart of gold, and were not intimidated by his repellent face. Between Sam and himself there had always existed terms of cordiality, starting from the time when the former was a small boy, and it had been, Jno Peter's mission to take him now to the zoo now to the train back to school why mr. Samuel hello Peters we were expecting you back a week ago so you got back safe safe why of course Peters shook his head I confess that when there was this delay in your coming here I sometimes feared something might have happened to you I recall mentioning it to the young lady who recently did me the honor to promise to become my wife ocean liners aren't often wrecked nowadays I was thinking more of the brawls on shore—America's a dangerous country. But perhaps you were not in touch with the Underworld?" I don't think I was. Ah! said Snow you Peters significantly. He took up the revolver and gave it a fond and almost paternal look, and replaced it on the desk. What on earth are you doing with that thing? asked Sam. Mr. Peters lowered his voice. I'm going to America myself in a few days' time, Mr. Samuel. It's my annual holiday, and the Governor's sending me over with papers in connection with the people V. Schultz and Bowen. It's a big case over there. A client of ours is mixed up in it, an American gentleman. I am to take these important papers to his legal representative in New York, so I thought it best to be prepared." The first smile that he had permitted himself in nearly two weeks flitted across Sam's face. (laughs) What <laughs> sort of place do you think New York is?" he asked. It's safer than London. Ah, but what about the Underworld? I've seen these American films that they send over here, Mr. Samuel. Every Saturday night, regular, I take my young lady to the cinema. And I tell you, they teach you something. Did you ever see the Wolves of the Bowery? There was a man in that, in just my position, carrying important papers, and what they didn't try to do to him. No, I'm taking no chances, Mr. Samuel. I should have said you were lugging that thing with you. Mr. Peters seemed wounded. Oh, I understand the mechanism perfectly, and I am becoming a very fair shot. I take my little bite of food in here early, and go and practise at the Rupert Street Rifle Range during my lunch hour. You'd be surprised how quickly one picks it up, and when I get home at night, I Try how quick I can draw. You have to draw like a flash of lightning, Mr. Samuel. If you'd ever seen a film called Two-Gun Thomas, you'd realise that. You haven't time to be loitering about. I haven't, agreed Sam. Is my father in? I'd like to see him if he's not busy. Mr. Peters, recalled to his professional duties, shed his sinister front like a garment. He picked up a speaking-tube and blew down it. Mr. Samuel to see you, Mr. Ballaby? Yes, sir, very good you go right in mr samuel sam proceeded to the inner office and found his father dictating into the attentive ear of miss millican his elderly and respectable stenographer replies to his morning mail the grime which encrusted the lawyer's professional stamping ground did not extend to his person sir mallaby marlow was a dapper little man with a round cheerful face and a bright eye his morning coat had been cut by london's best tailor his trousers perfectly creased by a sedulous valet a pink carnation in his buttonhole matched his healthy complexion his golf handicap was twelve his sister mrs horace hignett considered him worldly dear sirs we are in receipt of your favour and in reply beg to state that nothing will induce us uh, will induce us where did i put that letter ah nothing will induce us oh tell em to go to blazes miss millican very well sir mallaby what's that ready messrs bingley gruel and butterworth what infernal names these people have sirs on behalf of our client oh hello sam good morning father take a seat i'm busy but i'll be finished in a moment where was i miss milliken on behalf of our client oh yes on behalf of our client mr wigglesby eggshaw where these people get their names i'm hanged if i know your poor mother wanted to call you hyacinth sam you may not know it but in the nineties when you were born children were frequently christened hyacinth well i saved you from that his attention was now diverted to his son sir mallaby seemed to remember that the latter had just returned from a long journey and that he had not seen him for many weeks he inspected him with interest very glad to see your back sam so you didn't win no i got beaten in the semi-finals american amateurs are a very hot lot the best ones I suppose you are weak on the greens. I warned you about that. You'll have to rub up your putting before next year. At the idea that any mundane pursuit as practising putting could appeal to his broken spirit now, Sam uttered a bitter laugh. It was as if Dante had recommended some lost soul in the inferno to occupy his mind by knitting jumpers. Well, you seem to be in great spirits, said Sir Mallaby, approvingly it's pleasant to hear your merry laugh again isn't it miss millican extremely exhilarating agreed the stenographer adjusting her spectacles and smiling at sam for whom there was a soft spot in her heart a sense of the futility of life oppressed sam as he gazed in the glass that morning he had thought not without a certain gloomy satisfaction how remarkably pale and drawn his face looked and these people seemed to imagine that he was in the highest spirits. His laughter, which had sounded to him like the wailing of a demon, struck Miss Milliken as exhilarating. "'On behalf of our client, Mr. Wigglesby Eggshaw,' said Sir Mallaby, swooping back to duty once more, "'we beg to state that we are prepared to accept service. "'Sounds like a tennis match, eh, Sam? "'It isn't, though. "'This young ass, Eggshaw. "'What time did you dock this morning?' "'I landed nearly a week ago.' "'A week ago? Then what the deuce have you been doing with yourself? Why haven't I seen you?' "'I've been down at Bingley-on-the-Sea.' "'Bingley! What on earth were you doing in that god-forsaken place?' "'Wrestling with myself,' said Sam, with simple dignity. Sir Mallaby's agile mind had leaped back to the letter which he was answering. "'We should be glad to meet you. Wrestling, eh? Well, I like a boy to be fond of manly sports.' still life isn't all athletics don't forget that life is real life is how does it go miss milliken miss milliken folded her hands and shut her eyes her invariable habit when called upon to recite life is real life is earnest and the grave is not its goal dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul art is long and time is fleeting and our hearts though stout and brave still like muffled drums are beating, funeral marches to the grave. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footsteps on the sands of time. Let us then, said Miss Milliken respectfully, be up and doing. All right, all right, all right, said Sir Mallaby. I don't want it all. Life is real, life is earnest, Sam. I want to speak to you about that. When I finished answering these infernal letters. Where was I? We should be glad to meet you at any time, if you will make an appointment. Bingley on the sea! Good heavens! Why Bingley on the sea? Why not Margate, while you were about it? Margate is too bracing. I did not wish to be braced. Bingley suited my mood. It was grey and dark, and it rained all the time, and the sea slunk about in the distance like some baffled beast. He stopped. Becoming aware that his father was not listening, Sir Mallaby's attention had returned to the letter. "'Oh, what's the good of answering the dashed thing at all?' said Sir Mallaby. "'Bringley, Gould, and Butterworth know perfectly well that they have got us in a cleft stick. Butterworth knows it better than Ghoul, and Bringley knows it better than Butterworth. This young fool Eggshaw, Sam, admits that he wrote the girls twenty-three letters.' Twelve of them in verse and twenty-one specifically asking her to marry him and he comes to me and expects me to get him out of it the girl is suing him for ten thousand how like a woman miss milliken bridled reproachfully at this slur on her sex sir mallaby took no notice of it whatever if you will make an appointment then we can discuss the matter without prejudice get those type, miss milliken have a cigar sam Miss Milliken, tell Peters, as you go out, that I am occupied with the conference, and can see nobody for half an hour." When Miss Millican had withdrawn, Sir Mallaby occupied ten seconds of the period which he had set aside for communion with his son, in staring silently at him. "'I'm glad you're back, Sam,' he said at length. "'I want to have a talk with you. You know, it's time you were settling down. I've been thinking about you while you were in America, and I've come to the conclusion that I have been letting you drift along. Very bad for a young man you're getting on i don't say you're senile but you're not twenty-one any longer and at your age i was working like a beaver you've got to remember that life is Dash it! i've forgotten it again he broke off and puffed vigorously into the speaking tube miss milliken kindly repeat what you were saying just now about life yes yes that's enough he put down the instrument yes life is real life is earnest he said gazing at sam seriously And the grave is not our goal. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. In fact, it's time you took your coat off and started work. I'm quite ready, father. You didn't hear what I said, exclaimed Sir Mallaby, with a look of surprise. I said it was time you began work. And I said I was quite ready. Bless my soul, you've changed your views a trifle since I saw you last. I've changed them altogether. Long hours of brooding among the red plush settees in the lounge of the Hotel Magnificent at Bingley-on-the-Sea had brought about this strange, even morbid, attitude of mind in Samuel Marlowe, work he had decided even before his conversation with Eustace was the only medicine for his sick soul. Here he felt, in this quiet office far from the tumult and noise of the world, in a haven of torts and misdemeanours and Vic and ICAP-3s and all the rest of it, might find peace. At any rate, it was worth taking a stab at it." "'Your trip has done you good,' said Sir Mallaby approvingly. "'The sea air has given you some sense. I'm glad of it. It makes it easier for me to say something else I've had in, in my mind for a good while, Sam. It's time you got married.' Sam barked bitterly. His father looked at him with concern. Saw some smoke the wrong way?' "'I was laughing,' explained Sam with dignity. Sir Mallaby shook his head. I don't want to discourage your high spirit, but I must ask you to approach this matter seriously. Marriage would do you a world of good, Sam. It would brace you up. You really ought to consider the idea. I was two years younger than you are when I married your poor mother, and it was the making of me. A wife might make something of you. Impossible. I don't see why she shouldn't. There's lots of good in you, my boy, though you may not think so. When I said it was impossible, said sam coldly i was referring to the impossibility of the possibility i mean that it was impossible that i could possibly in other words father i shall never marry my heart is dead your what my heart don't be a fool there's nothing wrong with your heart all our family have had hearts like steam engines probably you have been feeling a sort of burning knock off cigars and that will soon stop you don't understand me I mean that a woman has treated me in a way that has finished her whole sex, as far as I am concerned. For me, women don't exist." "'You didn't tell me about this?' said Sir Mallaby, interested. "'When did this happen? Did she jilt you?' "'Yes.' "'In America, was it?' "'On the boat.' Sir Mallaby chuckled heartily. "'My dear boy, you don't mean to tell me that you're taking a shipboard flirtation seriously. Why, you're expected to fall in love with a different girl every time you go on a voyage. You'll get over this in a week. You'd have got over it now if you hadn't gone and buried yourself in a depressing place like Bingley-on-the-Sea. The whistle of the speaking-tube blew. Sir Mallaby put the instrument to his ear. All right, he turned to Sam. I shall have to send you away now, Sam. Man waiting to see me. Good-bye. Miss Millican intercepted Sam as he made for the door. Oh, Mr. Sam? Yes? Excuse me, but will you be seeing Sir Mallaby again today? If so, would you— I don't like to disturb him now when he is busy. Would you mind telling him that I inadvertently omitted a stanza? It runs, said Miss Milliken, closing her eyes. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present. Heart within and God or head. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. End of chapter nine. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Chapter Ten of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P.G. Woodhouse, Chapter Ten. At about the time when Sam Marlowe was having the momentous interview with his father, described in the last chapter, Mister Rufus Bennett woke from an after-luncheon nap in mrs hignett's delightful old-world mansion windles in the county of hampshire he had gone to his room after lunch because there seemed nothing else to do it was still raining hard so that a ramble in the picturesque garden was impossible and the only alternative to sleep the society of mr henry mortimer had become particularly distasteful to mr bennett much has been written of the great friendships between man and man, friendships which neither woman can mar nor death destroy. Rufus Bennett had always believed that his friendship for Mr. Mortimer was of this order. They had been boys together in the same small town, and had kept together in after years. They had been Damon and Pythias, David and Jonathan, but never till now had they been cooped up together in an English country house in the middle of a bad patch of English summer weather. So, this afternoon Mr. Bennet, in order to avoid his lifelong friend, had gone to bed. He awoke now with a start, and a moment later realized what it was that had aroused him. There was music in the air. The room was full of it. It seemed to be coming through the floor and rolling about in chunks all around his bed he blinked the last fragments of sleep out of his system, and became filled with a restless irritability. He rang the bell violently, and presently there entered a grave, thin, intellectual man, who looked like a duke, only more respectable. This was Webster, Mr. Bennett's English valet. "'Is that Mr. Mortimer?' he barked as the door opened. Oh, "'No, sir, it is I, Webster.' Not even the annoyance of being summoned like this from an absorbing game of penny nap in the housekeeper's room had the power to make the valet careless of his grammar. "'I fancied that I heard your bell ring, sir. "'I wonder you could hear anything with that infernal noise going on?' snapped Mr. Bennet. "'Is Mr. Mortimer playing that, that damned gas-engine in the drawing-room?' "'Yes, sir. Tostey's good-bye. A charming air, sir.' charming air tell him to stop it very good sir the valet withdrew like a duke leaving the royal presence not actually walking backwards but giving the impression of doing so mr bennett lay in bed and fumed presently the valet returned the music still continued to roll about the room i am sorry to inform you sir said webster that mr mortimer declines to accede to your request oh he said that did he that is the gist of his remarks, sir. Did you tell him I was trying to get to sleep? Yes, sir. I understood him to reply that he should worry and get a pain in the neck. Go down again and say that I insist on his stopping the thing. It's an outrage. Very good, sir. In a few minutes Webster, like the dove dispatched from the Ark, was back again. I fear my mission has been fruitless, sir. Mr. Mortimer appears adamant on the point at issue. You gave him my message? Verbatim, sir. In reply, Mr. Mortimer desired me to tell you that, if you did not like it, you could do the other thing. I quote the exact words, sir. He did, did he? Yes, sir. Very good. Webster, sir. When is the next train to London? I will ascertain sir cook I believe has a time-table go and see then I want to know and send miss Wilhelmina to me very good sir somewhat consoled by the thought that he was taking definite action mr. Bennett lay back and waited for Billy I want you to go to London he said when she appeared to London why I'll tell you why said mr. Bennett vehemently because of that pest, Mortimer. I must have legal advice. I want you to go and see Sir Mallaby Marlow. Here's his address. Tell him the whole story, tell him that this man is annoying me in every possible way, and ask if he can't be stopped. If you can't see Sir Mallaby himself, see someone else in the firm. Go up tonight so that you can see him first thing in the morning. You can stop the night at the Savoy. I've sent Webster to look out a train." There's a splendid train in about an hour. I'll take that. It's giving you a lot of trouble, said Mr. Bennett with belated consideration. Oh, no, said Billy. I'm only too glad to be able to do something for you, father dear. This noise is a terrible nuisance, isn't it? You're a good girl, said Mr. Bennett. End of Chapter 10 Recording by Tim Bulkeley of BigBible.org Chapter Eleven of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P.G. Woodhouse, Chapter Eleven. That's right," said Sir Mallaby Marlowe. "Work while you're young, Sam. Work while you're young." He regarded his son's bent head with affectionate approval. What's the book today? Widgery on Nisi Prius evidence, said Sam without looking up. Capital, said Sir Mallaby. Highly improving and as interesting as a novel. Some novels. There's a splendid bit on, I think, page two hundred and fifty-four, where the hero finds out all about copyhold and customary estates. It's a wonderfully powerful situation. It appears, oh, but I won't spoil it for you. Mind you don't skip to see how it all comes out in the end. Sir Mallaby suspended conversation, while he addressed an imaginary ball with the mashie which he had taken out of his golf bag, for this was the day when he went down to Walton Heath for his weekly foursome with three old friends. His tubby form was clad in tweed of a violent nature, with knickerbockers and stockings. Sam! Well, Sam, a man at the club showed me a new grip the other day. Instead of overlapping the little finger of the right hand, Oh, by the way, Sam. Yes, I should lock up the office today if I were you, or anxious clients will be coming in and asking for advice, and you'll find yourself in difficulties. I shall be gone, and Peters is away on his holiday. You'd better lock the outer door. All right, said Sam absently. He was finding widgery stiff reading. He had just got to a bit about raptu hyradis, which, as of course you know, is a writ for taking away an heir holding in socage. Sir so Mellerby looked at his watch. Well, I'll have to be going. See you later, Sam. Good-bye. So Mallaby went out, and Sam, placing both elbows on the desk and twining his fingers in his hair, returned with a frown of concentration to his grappling with widgery. For perhaps ten minutes the struggle was an even one. Then gradually widgery got the upper hand. Sam's mind, numb by constant batterings against the stony ramparts of legal phraseology, weakened, faltered, and dropped away and a moment later his thoughts, as so often happened when he was alone, darted off and began to circle round the image of Billy Bennett. Since they had last met, Sam had told himself perhaps a hundred times that he cared nothing about Billy, that she had gone out of his life and was dead to him, but unfortunately he did not believe it. A man takes a deal of convincing on a point like this, and Sam had never succeeded in convincing himself for more than two minutes at a time. It was useless to pretend that he did not still love Billy more than ever, because he knew he did, and now as the truth swept over him for the hundred and first time he groaned hollowly and gave himself up to the grey despair which is the almost inseparable companion of young men in his position. So engrossed was he in his meditation that he did not hear the light footstep in the outer office and it was only when it was followed by a tap on the door of the inner office that he awoke, with a start, to the fact that clients were in his midst. He wished that he had taken his father's advice and locked up the office. Probably this was some frightful bore who wanted to make his infernal will, or something. Sam had neither the ability nor the inclination to assist him. Was it too late to escape? Perhaps if he did not answer the knock, the blighter might think there was nobody at home. But suppose he opened the door and peeped in a spasm of Napoleonic strategy seized Sam he dropped silently to the floor and concealed himself under the desk Napoleon was always doing that sort of thing there was another tap then as he had anticipated the door opened Sam crouched like a hare in its form held his breath it seemed to him that he was going to bring this delicate operation off with success he felt he had acted just as Napoleon would have done in a similar crisis so no doubt he had to a certain extent only a napoleon would have seen to it that his boots and about eighteen inches of his trousered legs were not sticking out plainly visible to all who entered good morning said a voice sam thrilled from the top of his head to the soles of his feet it was the voice which had been ringing in his ears through all his waking hours are you busy mr Marlowe? asked billy addressing the boots sam, wriggled out from under the desk like a disconcerted tortoise. "'Drop my pen,' he mumbled, as he rose to the surface. He pulled himself with an effort that was like a physical exercise. Stared at Billy dumbly. Then, recovering speech, he invited her to sit down, and seated himself at the desk. "'Drop my pen,' he gurgled again. "'Yes,' said Billy. "'Fountain pen,' babbled Sam, with a broad nib. "'Yes.' a broad gold nib went on sam with the painful exactitude which comes only from embarrassment or the early stages of intoxication really said billy and sam blinked and told himself resolutely that this would not do he was not appearing to advantage it suddenly occurred to him that his hair was standing on end as the result of his struggle with widgery he smoothed it down hastily and felt a trifle more composed the old fighting spirit of the marlowe's now began to assert itself to some extent he must make an effort to appear as little of a fool as possible in this girl's eyes what eyes they were golly like stars like two bright planets in however that was neither here nor there he pulled down his waistcoat and became cold and businesslike, the dry young lawyer um, how do you do miss bennett he said with a question in his voice raising his eyebrows in a professional way He modelled this performance on that of lawyers he had seen on the stage, and wished he had some snuff to take, or something to tap against his front teeth. Miss Bennet, I believe. Billy drew herself up stiffly. Yes, she replied. How clever of you to remember me. I have a good memory. How nice, so have I. There was a pause, during which Billy allowed her gaze to travel casually about the room. Sam occupied the intermission by staring furtively at her profile he was by now in a thoroughly overwrought condition, and the thumping of his heart sounded to him as if workmen were mending the street outside. How beautiful she looked, with that red hair peeping out beneath her hat, and, however, is there anything I can do for you? he asked in the sort of voice Widgery might have used. Sam always pictured Widgery as a small man with bushy eyebrows, a thin face, and a voice like a rusty file. Well, I really wanted to see Sam Allaby, my father has been called away on important business at Walton Heath. Cannot I act as his substitute? Do you know anything about the law? Do I know anything about the law? Echoed Sam, amazed. Do I know? Why, I was reading my widgery on Nisiprious evidence when you came in. Oh, were you? said Billy, interested. Do you always read on the floor? I told you I'd drop my pen, said Sam coldly. And of course you couldn't read without that. Well, as a matter of fact, this has nothing to do with nisi what you said. I have not specialized exclusively on nisi prius evidence. I know the law in all its branches. Then what would you do if a man insisted on playing the orchestrion when you wanted to get to sleep? The orchestrion, yes, the orchestrion, eh? Uh, ah, hm," said Sam. "You still haven't made it quite clear," said Billy. "I was thinking." Oh, if you want to think. Tell me the facts, said Sam. Well, Mr. Mortimer and my father have taken a house together in the country, and for some reason or other they have quarrelled. And now Mr. Mortimer is doing everything he can to make my father uncomfortable. Yesterday afternoon father wanted to sleep, and Mr. Mortimer started his orchestrion just to annoy him. I think—I'm not quite sure. I think that's a tort, said Sam. A what? Either a tort or a misdemeanour. Why, you do know something about it after all!" cried Billy, startled into a sort of friendliness in spite of herself. And at the words and the sight of her quick smile, Sam's professional composure reeled on its foundations. He had half risen, with the purpose of springing up and babbling of the passion that consumed him, when the chill reflection came to him that this girl had once said that she considered him ridiculous. If he let himself go! Would she not continue to think him ridiculous? He sagged back into his seat, and at that moment there came another tap on the door, which opening revealed the sinister face of the holiday-making Peters. "'Oh, good morning, Mr. Samuel,' said jno Peters. "'Good morning, Miss Milliken." Oh!' He vanished as abruptly as he had appeared. He perceived that what he had taken at first glance for the stenographer was a client, and that the junior partner was engaged on a business conference. He left behind him a momentary silence. "'What a horrible-looking man!' said Billy, breaking it with a little gasp. Do know Peter's often affected the opposite sex like that at first sight?' "'I beg your pardon?' said Sam absently. "'What a dreadful-looking man! He quite frightened me!' For some moments Sam sat without speaking. If this had not been one of his Napoleonic mornings— No doubt the sudden arrival of his old friend, Mr. Peters, whom he had imagined at his home in Putney, packing for his trip to America, would have suggested nothing to him. As it was, it suggested a great deal. He had had a brain-wave, and for fully a minute he sat tingling under its impact. He was not a young man who often had brain-waves, and when they came they made him rather dizzy. "'Who is he?' asked Billy. "'He seems to know you. And who?' She demanded, after a slight pause, is Miss Milliken?" Sam drew a deep breath. It's rather a sad story, he said. His name is John Peters. He used to be clerk here. But isn't he any longer? No. Sam shook his head. We had to get rid of him. I don't wonder a man looking like that. It wasn't that so much, said Sam. The thing that annoyed Father was that he tried to shoot Miss Millican. Billy uttered a cry of horror he tried to shoot miss Milliken. he did shoot her the third time said sam warming to his work only in the arm fortunately he added but my father is rather a stern disciplinarian and he had to go i mean we couldn't keep him after that good gracious she used to be my father's stenographer and she was thrown a good deal with peters it was quite natural that he should fall in love with her she was a beautiful girl with rather your own shade of hair Peters is a man of volcanic passions, and when, after she had given him to understand that his love was returned, she informed him one day that she was engaged to a fellow at Ealing West, he went right off his onion. I mean, he became completely distraught. I must say that he concealed it very effectively at first. We had no inkling of his condition, till he came in with the pistol, and after that, well, as I say, we had to dismiss him. Great pity, for he was a good clerk. Still he wouldn't do. It wasn't only that he tried to shoot Miss Milliken. That wouldn't have mattered as much as she left after his third attempt, and got married. But the thing became an obsession with him, and we found that he had a fixed idea that every red-haired woman who came into the office was the girl who had deceived him. You can see how awkward that made it. Red hair is so fashionable nowadays. My hair is red, whispered Billy pallidly. "'Yes, I noticed it myself. "'I told you it was much the same shade as Miss Milliken's. "'It's rather fortunate that I happened to be here with you when he came. "'But he may be lurking out there still.' "'I expect he is,' said Sam carelessly. "'Yes, I suppose he is. "'Would you like me to go and send him away?' "'All right.' "'But—but but is it safe?' Sam uttered a light laugh. "'I don't mind taking a risk or two for your sake,' he said, and sauntered from the room closing the door behind him. Billy followed him with worshipping eyes. Joe you know Peters rose politely from the chair in which he had seated himself, for a more comfortable perusal of the copy of Home Whispers, which he had brought with him to refresh his mind, in the event of the firm being too busy to see him immediately. He was particularly interested in the series of chats with young mothers. "'Hello, Peters,' said Sam. "'Want anything?' Very sorry to have disturbed you, Mr. Samuel. I just looked in to say good-bye. I sail on Saturday, and my time will be pretty fully taken up all all the week. I have to go down to the country to get some final instructions from the client whose important papers I'm taking over. I'm sorry to have missed your father, Mr. Samuel. Yes, this is his golf day. I'll tell him you looked in. Is there anything I can do before I go? Do? Well, (coughs) you know Peter's coughed tactfully. I see that you are engaged with a client, Mr. Samuel, and I was wondering if any little point of law had arisen with which you did not feel yourself quite capable of coping. In that case, I might perhaps be of assistance." "'Oh, that lady,' said Sam, that is Miss Milliken's sister." "'Indeed?' "'I did not know Miss Milliken had a sister.' "'No,' said Sam, "'she is not very like her in appearance.' "'No, this one is the beauty of the family, I believe, and very bright, intelligent girl. I was telling her about your revolver just before you came in. She was most interested. It's a pity you haven't got it with you now, to show her." "'Oh, but I have—I have, Mr. Samuel,' said Peters, opening a small handbag and taking out a hymn-book, half a pound of mixed chocolates, a tongue-sandwich, and the pistol, in the order named. I was on my way to the Rupert Street range for a little practice. I should be glad to show it to her." "'Well, wait here a minute or two, said Sam. "'I'll have finished talking business in a moment.' he returned to the inner office well cried billy eh oh he's gone said sam i persuaded him to go away he was a little excited poor fellow and now let us return to what we were talking about you say he broke off with an exclamation glanced at his watch good heavens i had no idea of the time i promised to run up and see a man in one of the offices in the next court He wants to consult me on some difficulty which has arisen with one of his clients. Rightly or wrongly, he values my advice. Can you spare me for a short while? I shan't be more than ten minutes. Certainly. Here is something you may care to look at while I'm gone. I don't know if you read it. Widgery on prius evidence. Most interesting. He went out. Joe Peters looked up from his home whispers. You can go in now, said Sam. Certainly, Mr. Samuel, certainly. Sam took up the copy of Home Whispers, and sat down with his feet on the desk. He turned to the serial story, and began to read the synopsis. In the inner room, Billy, who had rejected the mental refreshment offered by Widgery, was engaged in making a tour of the office, looking at the portraits of whiskered men, whom she took correctly to be the Thorpes, Prescott's, Winslow's, and Appleby's, mentioned on the contents bill outside, was surprised to hear the door open at her back, She had not expected Sam to return so instantaneously. Nor had he done so. It was not Sam who entered. It was a man of repellent aspect, whom she recognised instantly. For no Peters was one of those men who, once seen, are not easily forgotten. He was smiling—a cruel, cunning smile—at least she thought he was. Mr Peters himself was under the impression that his face was wreathed in a benevolent simper and in his hand he bore the largest pistol ever seen outside a motion-picture studio how do you do miss milliken he said End of chapter eleven recording by tim Bulkeley of big bible dot org